Hello and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Gondek. And today I'm speaking to John Palfrey, the author of Safe Spaces, Brave Spaces, Diversity and Free Expression in Education. John Palfrey is head of school at Phillips Academy Andover, co-author of Born Digital, How Children Grow Up in a Digital Age, and author of the MIT Press Essential Knowledge Volume, Intellectual Property Strategy. John Palfrey, thanks for being on the MIT Press Podcast today. Thank you, Chris. Although the issues in this book, Safe Spaces, Brave Spaces, really touch on every facet of society, you make it pretty clear that the audience you wish to address are educators. So for those men and women in education who are having to address the issues surrounding diversity and free expression on campus, what does your book offer them? Thank you, Chris. It's a book that I hope more people will read than just educators, but absolutely, I have designed it in a way to speak directly to those who are making decisions in schools, whether that's a teacher in a classroom, or that's an administrator, a dean, for instance, or the head of an institution who are looking at ways to uphold values of diversity and free expression at the same time. And I certainly can't offer specific answers for every instance, but I really do try to provide a theoretical framework that says, here's a way that we can hold these two values, which are both important, both to our schools, our, uh, our universities, and our society at large at the same time. One of the things you point out in your book is that often uh, the men and women who are currently representing institutions that are in dialogue with student activists were themselves often activists during their student days, whether it was during the 60s, the 80s, etc. So what's different about today's campuses than, say, those campuses of the 60s and 80s? Are there really categorical differences in how things are being approached, or is it basically the same issues just with somewhat, with somewhat different clothing? Thanks, Chris. I think there are at least two big things going on. One is that, of course, our campuses are more diverse than they were before. I think that is a very positive and powerful thing. And it is one of the issues that we're all grappling with, which is we seek to have more diverse, more equitable, more inclusive campuses. And that is, I think, consistent with our founding value as a country of equity and equality of people. And that's something that we are trying to live up to on each of these campuses. So that's one key demographic fact. The other one, as you mentioned, is that many of the people who are in decision-making roles, whether it's presidents or deans of institutions or those teachers in the classrooms, many of them were growing up in the 60s and the 70s. They often were radicals on the left in in some respects, and now they're in decision-making roles. And some of them, I think, are struggling with the fact that they are then uh, pitted as the administration, often against student activists, when student activists have something to say. And that's an awkward role for many people uh, who might be reading this book. Um, It seems to me, just as an outsider, that one of the things that is driving this debate, or at least paying the public sense of the debate, is the way the media is covering um, some of these things on campus. And these are going to be my words. They are not the words in the book. But in some ways, it seems like we're almost – it's being presented as sort of a – smaller version of the, the forces that put the French Revolution in place, that is just a degree of intolerance to certain ways of thinking. I got a sense from your book that you do not agree with this characterization. Is that accurate? I think that oftentimes the media has made this particular topic uh, more complicated, frankly, by the the frames in which uh, it's been put, and 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 that's often just true how things get when they're they're brought out of context and and made more simple. For instance, you read a lot of headlines about how this is a generation that hates speech. Turns out that that's not true in the data when you look at it. Uh, in fact, the a recent survey that the Knight Foundation funded 
um, that's looked at high school students shows that the support for, for free expression has been going up, not down among high school students, uh, as an example. Um, so this is not a generation that hates free speech. This is a generation that is thinking, I think, about free speech in slightly different ways in some contexts, and they're seeing it as sometimes in tension with diversity. So that would be one example where I think it's uh, the, there's more nuance to the story, and that would actually really help. Uh, I do also think that we're in something of a culture war at the moment, and that culture war does often pit people on the left against people on the right. We see that in presidential politics. We see that in our town squares. We see that on our college campuses. And I think that, uh, again, a little bit more nuance and, and listening a little bit more carefully to the arguments and thinking really about the underpinnings of these ideas about how liberty and equality, about how free expression and diversity are, in fact, often really related as, uh, as ideas more than they are pitted against one another. The term hate speech is quite powerful and it shouldn't be used lightly, but it does seem to be brandished more and more during campus protest. Is there a working definition of hate speech that educators should use in evaluating accusations of hate speech by different groups on campus? I think it's a really important question to think about what hate speech means right now. And it's one of the most complicated issues on, on this topic because hate speech itself is actually something that's not regulated uh, in the United States. So the First Amendment doesn't have a bar against hate speech. Um, if you're looking for a specific definition, uh, I adopt in this book the one that's in the Oxford English Dictionary, and that is to say speech that's expressing hatred or intolerance of other social groups, especially on the basis of race or sexuality. Um, and one of the topics that I take up in the book is when hate speech is presented on campuses, how can colleges uh, and universities and schools like the one that I work at, Phillips Academy, regulate that? And I do think there are many ways in which we do and, and can regulate hate speech on a campus. Um, but I think that it becomes trickiest when you've got a school that's committed to upholding the First Amendment um, and yet at the same time wants to protect students from the effects of hate speech. Um, and that's where the rub comes in. Could you talk about the relationship between an institution's mission statement and the range of responses they could consider when addressing a conflict between diversity and free speech? And I, secondary to that, and you talk a little bit about this in the book, how should institutions signal to potential students that this relationship between that mission statement and how they might be addressing conflicts could be more significant than maybe students initially think during the admissions process? I think that schools are... Uh, communicating at all times with with students and with parents about their values through things like their rules and the and of course mission statements that that schools put forward and I think students should choose with care the kind of institution that they want to go to. I make the argument in the book that it is okay that we have heterogeneity of types of responses to these topics based upon the kind of school and the kind of mission of that institution. So one way in which this plays out is you can imagine a high school thinking about it differently than a college. There are different age-appropriate sets of rules for those who are 14 and 18 to 18 um, compared to those who are maybe 19 to 22. Likewise, uh, graduate students might have uh, a different set of rules. So that's one way in which I think that there could be some variation. Another is to say, what if you're a religious institution, you're a school that's devoted to the uh, students of the Jewish faith, you might have a different rules about a uh, set of rules about hate speech involving, for instance, um, the way people talk about Jewish people. That would be a totally appropriate set of rules, I think, to communicate to the community in advance, to let them know how you'll react to those things, and then to practice that when, when it comes uh, time to, to deal with one of these hard problems. I think the trouble comes in, the hard problem comes in, if a school does something different 
than what it said it was going to do. And, and I think appropriately, schools are criticized for a bait and switch where they say, we support free speech in a particular way. And then if it curtails free speech when a student shows up, I think that's a problematic st- uh, st- uh, statement. Um, is it, and I don't, the word easy or easy, comparative easier is kind of a challenge for this, but is it easier for private institutions to have perhaps a wider palette of ways to address these questions than public universities simply because of the nature of the funding and the nature of the charter of public schools? Absolutely. It is certainly easier for private institutions than public institutions. So I think at least if you're a big public university, it's pretty clear that the First Amendment needs to be what you go by. And I think that constrains the decisions that the uh, the administration can make. And let's be clear, it's part of our constitution and that's that's a positive thing. If you are a private institution, you have a greater latitude in terms of what you can tell your students you're going to do and then the kinds of decisions that you make. The First Amendment comes up in the book, as one would expect quite often on a book about uh, free expression and diversity. Uh, we Initially, I framed this as a book towards educators, but you, as you point out your first answer, it's obviously you'd like a broader segment of society to read it. I want to turn to students. Um, you do point out, and certainly it's 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 happened all through, like as long as students have been uh, protesting, that often there's a bit of overreach as far as students are concerned. Uh, taking this back to the First Amendment, is there are there particular issues around the First Amendment that students perhaps their interpretation of maybe isn't quite as nuanced as it could be? That, that if you wanted to get a message out to those students who are getting ready to protest and are using the First Amendment as a shield, or not so much a shield, but as a rationale for what they're doing, are there some things about the First Amendment you'd like them to think about as they move forward to perhaps give them a nuanced view of what it might be? I would love for students to listen to this podcast and to engage with the ideas around the First Amendment. That would be great. And I think we need to do a better job of that kind of education in our schools. That's an argument I make in the book. So absolutely. I think really understanding how the First Amendment works, what it protects and what it doesn't is essential. And obviously, I can't do that in a short answer on a podcast, but it's, it's an, I think, an invitation for students to engage with it. I'd say on the flip side, I think it's very important also the students who are using the First Amendment as, as you suggest, sort of a shield for doing things that are, that can be pretty awful, that they ought to pause and say, why do we need this shield to do this kind of uh, thing? And, and are we really advancing the goals of a community if we are just simply trying to provoke for its own sake? Are we actually trying to honor all the values here? So I would think that that all those who are engaging with the First Amendment um, ought to think about uh, what it means and, and also how it stands in relation to other kinds of values we have. And that's partly what I'm calling for in this book is to see our commitment to free expression also in the context of our commitment to a diverse society. So finally, as you point out, the 2016 U.S. presidential election was a particularly fraught event for the debate on diversity and free speech. One year later, are there things that you're watching in American politics that may affect the debate in the next few years? Sure. And I don't want to make this an overly political podcast or an overly political book for that matter. But it is, I think, essential to say that um, we we did elect a president who during the campaign and since has not been great on either of these issues that um, President Trump has both uh, been, I think, expressly critical of people coming into this country and of Muslims and Mexicans. He's also been expressly critical of uh, of the First Amendment in uh, in its full form and, and threatening to sue journalists and others who say bad things about him. So I think we have a leader who's actually not upholding these values. And that's something that a year later hasn't gotten any better. Um, and I think that it then falls on the rest of us to say we want to have a society in which we can uphold these two values, which are, you know, dating back to the founding of the country in terms of equality and liberty 
community. These are things that have grown over time and that have, have changed over time. I think we need to get it right in the intentional communities that are our campuses. And I think we then will be sending out kids who will do a better job of being able to have open, honest, national conversations uh, about these issues and about the big issues of our day. And we need to do better at that. John Palfrey, the author of Safe Spaces, Brave Spaces, Diversity and Free Expression Education. Thanks for being on the MIT Press podcast today. Thank you, Chris. For more information about this and other titles, please visit our website at mitpress.mit.edu. Don't forget you can find the MIT Press on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for listening to this episode of the MIT Press podcast. Copyright 2017, the MIT Press, all rights reserved.